Welcome to the Autobahn Country Club Podcast, where your host, club member John Graybeal, opens the doors to America's premier auto sports club. Now, here's John. I lost you for like the last 45 seconds, 30 seconds. And all well, it I, came is, we'll talk, I think that we'll talk about the standings. I think that the blender works, but anyway. Um, well, here we are. Uh, John Graybill here. Mark McFarland here. Part two, Bobby Rahal, the first two-part Audubon podcast. Bobby Rahal, part two, coming up. Uh, a couple weeks ago, was it, was it a McLaren F1 and an F40? And what all showed up at the track? All right. So there was, it was a McLaren dreamland, you know, and um, anyone who knows my son, um, he is not a Ferrari guy. He's not a Lamborghini guy. He is a McLaren guy. His driver for F1 is Lando Norris. His driver for Indy was Alonzo. So, I mean, this guy is so deep into McLaren. His cart, if you've ever seen his cart, it's papaya. It has papaya orange in it. So he is a hardcore McLaren kid. And uh, we pulled into the parking lot out in front of Stradale. And uh, one day there was a McLaren F1 LM, a Ferrari Enzo, and a McLaren Senna. And if that doesn't top it, then a couple, like later on in the week, there was the McLaren F1 streetcar. And according to the Facebook, Autobahn Facebook page, VIN number 0000001, which is just absolutely stunning. And then they had a... Whoa, 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 wait a minute. The very first McLaren F1 was at the Audubon Country Club? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and then, I, you know, and and you got to love Stradale. They, you know, and that's the great thing about having, you know, partners like Stradale at the Autobahn. You know, they bring out some fancy cars. They put a tent over them and let people not touch them. They're, they're not velvet roped off or anything like that. But we all know don't touch, just look and respect what's there. It's like a great piece of art. And there was not only there, I believe there was a McLaren 720S there. Um, and then there was the uh, McLaren F1 LM. And then there was, it's not even road legal yet in the United States, the European spec of a new McLaren, which literally has no top or windshield. Right, right, right. Yeah, I've seen it. That's crazy. Yeah, some aerodynamic yeah. thing. So, I mean, it's just awesome. And that whoever they brought, you know, and uh, I'll give you, I was talking to Gritter about this. And Mike Gritter, the uh, race director. Thank you. Thank you. I was talking with Mike Gritter and he said, you know, the, the, the McLaren F1 LM went out on the track because that's what you do with that car. Because it's not a piece of art. It's meant to be driven. And whoever owns it, golf claps all the way around for you for taking that out on the track. I appreciate that. Um, but Ritter said. He had never, ever seen anybody run a full sprint to start taking pictures of the car, except when that car, he said there was like four or eight people in a full, you know, fat guy running sprint to the take pictures with their cell phones and their cameras. Just everybody was stopped. Other cars were stopped. He goes, it's the first time he's ever seen that at the track. So <laughs> I, th- I thought that was kind of cool. Oh, wow. Interesting. Yeah, there's uh, right. You never know what you're going to see at 
And then we had some great racing over the past couple weeks, too, you know, since the last podcast. You know, we didn't even really touch upon, you know, the weekend of um, of uh, the weekend of the Indy 500 that led us to have this great interview with Bobby Rahal. You know, we had some great uh, um, spec Miata GT racing. How did, and I think your son did very well, if I remember correctly. His only his third race out on the track. Second race, yeah, his uh, first second. and second race out in the in the Spec Miatas, and uh, yeah, it was uh, he he. We had a very good uh, team. Graveyard had a very good start. Yeah, where I was as the team owner, I was very happy with his uh, <laughs> with his finishing positions in both the first race. Particularly happy in the second race. So uh, yeah, we, yeah, I was pretty happy. And then, as I talked about during on the last podcast. You know, running in between watching the Radical race and then running to watch the 500 and then back and forth. So there's some great Radical racing and uh, just really exciting. So overall, as everything continues at the Autobahn, it's just a great place to be and have fun. So always recommend coming out. Yes. And now we're about to start our, our part two of the Bobby Ray Hall interview where we finish up. We touch a little bit about now... <laughs> Him moving on into from racing, we're going to transition to car ownership and and then how the team kind of works, which I I was fascinated about. I thought it was pretty cool. Well, I look forward to hearing it. All right, so hey, let's welcome Bobby Ray Hall for part two on the Audubon Country Club podcast. Did you you race the whole? I just raced, you know. Uh, although I did get a job in in '76, I'd had a bad year, and I said, "Screw it, I'm not going to waste my life chasing this dream." And I got a job with a big ad agency in Chicago, and so worked there for about nine months. And the guy who'd been my mechanic, this guy that I mentioned that had gone to McLaren, said, "You know, you're making a mistake. You know, you need to keep going." And my girlfriend at the time said, same thing, you know, you're gonna regret this if you don't go back and give it a good good try. So I got an offer to go race, and this was in Formula Atlantic. I got an offer, I was gonna get paid $18,000. That seemed like a lot of money at the time. It probably was in the 70s, it was probably yeah, pretty good for, money, right? For, yeah, for hell, I was going racing. Somebody's right. gonna pay me to go racing. <laughs> yeah. so, uh, so I said said goodbye to the ad agency and, and uh, and uh, that I went back helped. racing. That probably helped with your ability to work with the sponsors. You knew probably things, oh, it to, did. things to talk to them it and did. the terminologies yeah. to use. No, it did. But it also, um, you know, I think it would have been, I think I was being pretty immature, frankly, about, yeah, you know, disappointments. You know, in racing, you lose a lot more races than you win, you know, and cars break and this happens and that happens. And I always tell young people, it's, you know, you, you know, you got to be dedicated, and you have to you have to persevere, and you have to have the commitment. And if you're not willing to give it all, you're all, and you're not willing to to you got to be tough. You know, because there's going to be days that are really frustrating. Yes, you know, that is one one thing. My my wife and I like both my son and daughter race, and there's no the races that we do. Um, you know, there's no participation trophy. Nope. I mean, there's people who are winning and people who are losing. Well, Heartbreaking. It's like, it's like know, we say, the, uh, the, the, guy, the, the guy who finishes second is the first loser. My son says that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. it's true, because nobody remembers the guy who finished second. They remember you know, the guy who wins, but they don't remember the guy who finished second. 
Right. And I, I like when he gets frustrated when he has a bad day and he doesn't win. You know, right. I like it that it upsets him. It bothers him. Yeah. Because um, he cares. I mean, it just shows me that yeah. he cares and he wants to do a good job. Yeah. And he's in the gym. You know, he's, he's exercising nowadays. He's in the yeah. gym. He's trying to, he understands what the Formula One Netflix series, Drive to Survive, yeah. is, yeah. you know, is a good motor because he's in front of the, yeah. you know, electronics all the time. But anyway, so it, real quick, the Formula One stuff, was it, this, a, a similar type, 20 cars like it is now? Yeah, it was 22, I think. 22? Well, actually, that's not true. Uh, it was, in those days, they had, um, I think they'd have somewhere around 26 or 28 cars would show up at every race, and then they'd take, not everybody would race. You know, they'd take the top 22. So, yeah, to qualify uh, to for To qualify for it, yeah. Was it the biggest, I mean, the biggest money-making for a driver was Formula One back in them days, or...? Um, well, the top guys, for sure. Although, again, the money's nothing like it was later on. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the top guys were, you know, Andretti was the top guy, uh, Fittipaldi. Um, and this is, we're talking, you know, late 70s. I mean, uh, uh, Ronnie Peterson, guys like that, you know, they were probably doing well. But still, those guys were out racing everything else, too. I mean, again, it wasn't... It's not like today where, you know, they were specialized. Raikkonen's yeah. making sixty million dollars. I mean, that that just doesn't happen. Of course, right. you didn't have the only manufacturer you had in racing in those days was uh, was Ferrari. You know, everything else was just little independent teams. You know, oh, later gosh. on to become. I didn't realize you know, that you're right. You had yeah. Williams Racing. You had Lotus. You had, I guess you could say Lotus was a manufacturer, but you know these people they had they had none of the resource that like a Mercedes has or. People that Ferrari sure. has today, Fiat Ferrari has today. So it's just a whole different world. And then, so, well, frankly, I think a better world than it is today. But it was a whole different world. <laughs> um, so in so in in Phoenix with the cars you were driving, the so were those uh, turbocharged? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. I know Tom Bagley talks about how you had the time the turbo boost. You'd hit the lag, the, yeah, yeah, the turbo oh, yeah. lag, yeah. Oh, yeah. You'd hit it, hit yeah. the accelerator at the beginning of the turn to time it so that it kicked yeah. in at the end. Of, yeah, I mean, talk about challenging. You oh my gosh, said, you're well, juggling the on end, the wing of an airplane. Yeah, well, you know, in the <laughs> end, it wasn't. Tom was in IndyCar a little bit before me, and we raced together um, in other categories as well. Uh, but, um, but you know, over time, uh, I mean, there was always gonna, there's always going to be lag in a turbocharged engine, um, just because it there is. But it got better and better and better over time, and um, and uh, uh, you know you had to learn how to drive it. You know? <laughs> it just, it, it just, is what it is. It just seems crazy to to be able to to do that when that 700 and some horsepower would yeah, kick in, yeah. you know, right behind you. Make sure you're pointed in the right direction. <laughs> <laughs> so the um, how was the? How did you feel the the safety with safety of the cars in the seventies? Were they um, moving in the right direction for safety and the driver safety and stuff? Or did you guys even well, think about it? Well, I mean, relatively speaking, sure. But you look at, you know, I mean, you know, you look at uh, a car, my '82 March, for example, my Indy, my first, my rookie year. At the time, you think, oh, that's a pretty safe car. You look at it today and you think, holy shit, you know, that thing's a, that thing's a lot different, huh? Oh, I mean, it's scary. 
it's scary. <laughs> but at the time, you think, and you're young, you know, <clears throat> and you don't think about getting hurt. Uh, and yet, you know, uh, um, you know, a lot of people got hurt badly. Uh, you know, through the whole through the whole '80s, even not early '90s, when the when your feet were ahead of the front axle, you hit the wall, and the first thing that that hit the wall in the nose of the car was your feet. You know, guys like Rick Mears, you know, their right. careers were were shortened considerably by that. And he wasn't the only one. There were other guys. Uh, guys were killed. Guys were, uh, you know, in 82, we lost, uh, well, two drivers, three, two drivers within three weeks. I mean, Gordon Smiley and qualifying at Indy, and then the guy named Jim Hickman at Milwaukee the week after the race, uh, in part because these cars were so flimsy. And... Um, and it was the beginning of ground effects, so you're going much faster through the corners than you had been traditionally. Um, so, I mean, a lot of guys, the, the, the 80s were, it was a pretty, you know, dangerous time. You didn't have safer walls. I mean, today, IndyCar racing, thankfully, is a lot safer. You know, and, and today now, with the new halo, you know, the, the, the windscreen, what have you, uh, even more so. But, um, uh, yeah, in those days, there was a lot of risk involved. And so you start um, 82, mm-hmm. um, and that's the same team that you... True Sports. True yep. Sports, and that's the one that took you through the, of course, through the, right. the, the in, big Indy win. And how, how was, when you went to Indy for the first time, for the first May, was it, I mean, I know you, you spoke about how cool it is now. Did you, at the time, did you uh, realize you'd look back on it and see what a magical... Time uh, well, I think, you know, for me it was... Um, um, or just work. Yeah, I mean, well, first for us, it was a lot of work because, again, none of us had any experience. So we didn't, uh, you know, we qualified, but not particularly great. Um, we actually did have a good race until the engine broke with about 10 laps to go. But um, uh, you know, for me, everything kind of came together in the race. Um, my comfort with the place, you know, just knowing how to drive the cars. Um, but up to that point, practice qualifying, it was kind of, you know, I don't know if I want to say intimidating, but it was, I mean, it was, uh, uh, it was challenging for all of us on the team because, again, we, we knew nothing. And we, we were, I mean, frankly, thankfully, there were some people that came by and would help out or give you a little, mm-hmm. little tips. Um, so that was good, um, but um, but still, um, it took a while for me to get really comfortable, and then after that, it was it was fine. But I mean, it was always you know when when you were, you know, they're going two twenty nine, two thirty around there today. Well, we were doing that in nineteen eighty nine, right? And um, you know, it was much more on edge. I think tires are better today, tracks better today, mm-hmm. tracks safer today. I mean. Nothing, not to take anything away from anybody who's driving there, because it is tough, particularly in qualifying. Much closer today, you know, in terms of everybody on top of each other. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it was a, I always said whenever you drove out of that place, the sky was bluer and the grass was greener every day. <laughs> and so when you were, how long, we, when you were, when you started Indy Cars, is that the only driving you did for that no, year? No, no, no. I was still, still in sports car racing. I mean, I'd won uh, with Brian Redman uh, and a fellow named Bob Garrettson, the uh, Daytona 24 Hours in a turbo Porsche. Um, 
I always did sports car racing. You know, again, that's where I kind of came from. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, so I did IMSA. Uh, uh, did a little bit of racing in sports cars in Europe. Went to Le Mans 80, 81, 82. Um, um, you know, to me, that was just part of it. And I always felt that the more you drove, the better you'd be anyway, and the more different kinds of things. I mean, I even drove a, I drove for the Wood, fam, Wood Brothers family at Riverside in a stock car one time. Um, but yeah, I mean, I won Sebring in 87, won a bunch of, of IMSA races. Uh, I really stopped sports car racing after 87, 88 maybe. Uh, but, um, but yeah, I felt that uh, the more I did, the better. Of course, I made more money as a result. But to me, it was all about being as, you know, the guys I admired were the guys who could win on any kind of track, in any kind of car. So I tried to follow that. Is there, at that time, was there a lot of work with the sponsors, or was the team owner oh, the yeah. primary most no, of that no, stuff? No, I mean, you know, sponsor, not like today, but um, uh, in terms of driver demands, but there were still demands. You know, we had Budweiser, you know, in 80, starting in 85, so, you know, they, you did things for them. Um, it was just different. Uh, today, there's a lot more expectation by companies towards the drivers as to what they're going to do. And uh, so it's much more work, I think, today than it was then. Uh, much more time consuming, but, you know, you do what you got to do. Was there the physical fitness aspect of it? Was that big? Not as in? much uh, as today. Um, I mean, it, there, there was, um, but nothing like... Uh, nothing like you see today, um, I think. And, uh, uh, and of course, it also depends today on, I mean, you know, you go to NASCAR and there's guys there that obviously don't work out. And then you, <laughs> right. but you, you go to an IndyCar race and everybody's, you know, 6% body fat. Right. You know, it's they're in the same Formula One, same way. Uh, road racing tends to, you know, road racing is de more demanding and oval physically. So, um, um, so you see guys, you know, being prepared for that. Um, and you, and maybe in the, in the old days, a guy would run, you know, kind of, you know, play tennis, you know, that kind of thing. But you didn't see people with special diets. You didn't see people, you know, again, it's just much, there's so much more awareness and knowledge of what's good for you today than there was then that, that it's just a different world. And how long was the season back? Then, ran, it? you know, March to September. Well, later on, uh, with CART in the 80s and 90s, it went from, say, March till October, you know, so uh, similar to today. Similar. Hmm. And so uh, your last year racing IndyCars, you had a pretty long career in Indy. I mean, uh, 98 was my last year, so yeah, 20, well, no, six, uh, 16 years in IndyCars. Uh, 25 years total, really, like from day one to the end of the end of the day. Is that possible to have a longevity career that long? Oh, nowadays? sure, probably more so now. You think? Yeah. Wow. Well, in part because, you know, guys are starting racing so much earlier. You know, I mean, me, 20, 20, 20 years old, I retired at 45. But now you got a guy like Graham who started racing at, if you count karting, started racing at nine years old. Right, he's already got to, what he's he's he just turned he th turned thirty one yesterday, so he's he's got to twenty two years, mm -hmm. 
in racing of various types. And for sure, he'll do more IndyCar races than I ever did. Uh, and you got guys like Tony Kanaan. I think I did 200 and I'm not sure how many races, 230 or 240 IndyCar races. I think Kanaan's at 300 already, you know, and he's still racing. So Graham will be way more than that if he continues. So, uh, and there's other guys just buying Graham that, you know, that, start, that started at the same time. So it's, it's, um, it's a different, different world. Did you, uh, when you became a, a, an owner, uh, is, you were do, still kind of an owner while you were racing. Mm -hmm. kind yeah, of the too. last few years, yeah. Did you always see yourself as that end of the career? Is that where you were going to go? Never. Or? Never saw myself. Never saw. No. But when I was 39, and one of the things I'd seen um, was drivers uh, becoming embittered because they felt that they were being retired before they were ready. You know, that, you know, um, you know of course, the reason people wouldn't hire you is you weren't competitive anymore. But, you know, it's hard for people to recognize that or accept that. And as I got closer to my 40s, you know, I thought, you know, I'd really like to have as much control over my, uh, my career as possible. And the only way I'm going to be able to do that is by owning the team or co-owning the team. And so I, uh, uh, yeah, at, at 38 and the 91, I had been working towards um, uh, driving for a different team than True Sports. And, you know, and over the years, I'd always worked hard on the sponsorship side, you know, just getting, you know, working that angle, not necessarily, you know, bringing sponsors, but also just cooperating with the sponsors we had. And you develop relationships. And um, so I signed with a team who had, um, uh, they were trying to get the Chevy engine, which was the engine to have. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, this, is 19, uh, this is 1991, and they couldn't get it. And... Uh, the sponsor didn't want, they'd had a bad previous year, this was Miller uh, beer. They had a, pre, a bad year with the Alpha engine the previous two years and they didn't want anything but a Chevy. And so I went to Miller and said, well, why don't we start a team and I'll get, we'll get a Chevy and off we'll go. And they agreed and they signed a three year deal. And uh, you know, we ended up winning the championship the next year. So, um, you know, and continued to have a relationship with Miller till 2005. So, uh, um, you know, it, it just kind of all kind of, the pieces just came together. And uh, and here I am now, that's 92 he started, and here we are almost 30 years ago. Wow, yeah, yeah that's, and, and <clears throat> Were you always based, I mean, were you base camped in here in Chicago? Is that where no. your house was always? No, I was living in Columbus, Ohio at the time. I moved there when I went to drive for True Sports in 1982. Okay. So I moved back to Ohio. I'd gone to college in Ohio. And, uh, and yeah, I, uh, I, um, I was there. And we still have, our, our BMW team is still based in, in Columbus in the same facilities that we had in 1985. So uh, I was there for many years, and then came back to Chicago about ten years ago. Oh, pretty. Oh, for okay. me personally. Yeah. And the IndyCar team is based in Indianapolis. The BMW team is based in Columbus. So how big is the, or how many staff members do you have for the? Well, you know? well between the two, right, about a hundred. Holy cow! Yeah. That's that's a lot. Too. Yeah. 
to juggle. Yep. Well, it, I mean, you know, especially now, I mean, we have, you know, team managers and engineering and technical directors. I mean, um, yeah, my name's up there at the top along with my partners, you know, but, but you know, the day-to-day is being really handled by all these other guys. However, having said that, my commitment or my real um, job now is to work with our marketing salespeople to bring in the money. Right. So that's kind of come full circle. <laughs> it was that way in the beginning, and here it is at the end, and that's the way it is again. If you weren't a driver, what would be the coolest job to have on your team? On my team? Oh, to be on the team? You know, the coolest job is to be the driver. I know. There, yeah. there, nothing, <laughs> I don't know if there's anything better than that, frankly. I don't know if I'd want to be anything other than, you know, the owner, you still get a thrill. I mean, the great thing about racing is no matter what position you hold, I mean, it's still a thrill to win. Great sense of accomplishment. Um, I guess... I, I guess the only thing I'd rather be is an owner, so here I am. But, um, but just being involved in racing is a, uh, I have no, I, I, you know, I, was, I, was, I tell people I was very lucky. My hobby was my, my avocation was my vocation, right? <laughs> right. I, you know, I never, I mean, I like skiing and things like that. But, I, I, you know, I never have a problem getting up in the morning going to a racetrack or you're thinking it's work. It's not work. It's a passion. And very, very fortunate to, to have it because very few people are, 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 for, are lucky enough like that. to, to, uh, to uh, That's why people go hunting. That's why people go fishing. That's why people go... To the Audubon. To the Audubon, <laughs> yeah. You know, all the guys around here you know, who are out there, you know, out there you know, having fun. I mean, that's, uh, I was able to do that for my life, for my livelihood. And uh, very fortunate. Do you, is it challenging to find employees, like the engineers and mechanics? Is it challenging or is it, it, it seems pretty prestigious to me. So you think there'd be a lot well, of Well, it's a challenge to today. I mean, um, getting young people, um, uh, one of the things we've been working on over the last several years is bringing young guys in as mechanics. I mean, being a race mechanic is hard. It's a tough life. Uh, you're gone a lot. You're away from your family. You're it's long hours. Um, <clears throat> it's not nine to five. Um, and like anything, I suppose. Uh, I mean, you, you you still get young guys. We've been fortunate to bring a few guys in that over the last six seven years on our IndyCar team. That young people who really got talent and want to want to do it. Um, it's hard to find them. It's hard to find them. It's not like it used to be. It used to be fairly easy. Today, it's harder. And I don't know if it's because of the work or if it's because there's other interests or if it's because young people don't have as much interest in cars, although I don't think that's the case. But it's just, um, it's just harder. And, uh, and then to find the people that understand and are willing to accept you know, the workload and... Uh, uh, I mean, there's no question today, I think, in general, um, you don't see young people willing to do the, the level of work um, that it takes that, you have, that I've seen in the past. Is, so, like, a, let's take a, uh, a, um, somebody that's in the pits, you know, that, that jumps over the wall. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where, where do you find people like that? I mean, well, you find them they're within your team. And there are, but there are some guys that don't want to do that. 
Oh, yeah. so they're they have dual jobs. Oh, sure. Oh, so yeah. they're not just the guy that's mm-hmm. yeah. changing tires on no. the in the pit lane. Yeah. Uh-uh. Oh, NASCAR okay. does that, but no, we don't do that. It's you're part of the team. Now you might have a guy, you know, one guy that might fly in to do you know fueling or might fly in to do the uh, something, um, but. No, for the most part, I mean, if you're going to work as a mechanic or if you're going to work within the team, then you have to be willing to go over the wall if that's what it takes. Is there specific, um, you know, we, I see stories about the specific guys that are, you know, pulling the tires on and off, and that's what they're exercising, mm-hmm. they're practicing that yeah, all the time. Yeah, yeah. These guys are in the gym doing yeah, that stuff also yeah. as they're still yep. working on the... Yep. Yeah, all of our all the people within our team, whether they're mechanics or not, we provide, um, we push them to work out. We have a facility and expect them to work out because we want them healthy. We want them, you know, good shape. Obviously, the guys going over the wall—that's even more critical because you know those tires—they're not light and um, other things going on. Um, so you know you need to be in good shape, but. Um, um, you know, it's uh, it's uh, that's part of the deal. So, as a as a mechanic, is that someone who's went to school as a? Uh, are you okay on time? Yeah, just uh, for a little bit. Um, maybe. If do you does the mechanic does that need to does that a? Is he in, was he a mechanical engineer in college or was he just a mechanic his whole life or how, how did some of these? Well, guys? the engineering guys you see, they come. I mean, there are a lot of guys. I mean, in fact, today you see. Uh, down at IUPUI, which is Indiana University, Purdue, in, in Indianapolis, they have a motorsports engineering degree. Oh, yeah. There's a, that option. Uh, Clemson has the same thing. There's a couple other universities, more so in Southeast because of NASCAR, where there's actual degrees to become a racing mechanic or what have you, a racing engineer. Um, I mean, we get young guys from an engineering side all the time, you know. Um, you know, wanting to be a race engineer and they're in school and they're, you know. Um, so, you know, there seems to be a, a, a good stream of that kind of talent. What you don't see are the guys, and I think in part, to a degree, in part, because, you know, you don't work on your own car like you used to. You know, new car, it's so complicated today. You have to have computers and everything else to, to maintain your car. Uh, you have to go to a dealer or what have you to do that, whereas in the old days, I mean, you could, you know, pull the hood up, change the points, put new plugs in, whatever it was, right? And that's where you saw so many of the mechanics coming from. Where you do see mechanics coming from also is in outside the United States, where you see people, you know, from New Zealand, Australia, England. Uh, you see a lot more interest in that kind of stuff. Um, so... It kind of depends on where you are and, and what have you. Um, uh, you know, NASCAR, for example, is a way of life in the Southeast. Uh, IndyCar in the Midwest. You know, you got off-road racing out west. You know, in the Southwest and West. Um, it kind of depends on where you are, but um, um, but the world has changed too. You don't you don't have the you don't have the um, the number of people. I think that. The guys that are just walking up and saying, hey, I want to be a mechanic and I want to, you know. It comes from their families, you know. Maybe they start go-kart racing, you know. They love the mechanical side of the equation. They, you know, like Graham's chief mechanic has been with him since, God, 2000, 
2002, three, young guy from here in the Chicago area, started working on his go-kart and Graham's cart, and he was a young kid. And you know, here we are, whatever, 16 years later, and he's still with Graham, and he's now the chief mechanic on his Indy car. Wow, that's yeah. cool. Yeah, so that's really cool. So I don't want to paint a bad, uh, horribly negative picture, saying, "Well, there's nobody out there," because there are. There are a lot, of, but you don't see it like you once did, and and particularly, it's the work ethic that Indy car or racing as a whole is just. A, you don't do it for the money; you do it for the passion, and. Uh, as I said, the time, the hours are long, and it's hard on families. And um, you know, you just gotta, you gotta have, uh, you gotta have the, you gotta have to have the willingness to to do it. Wow. So let's switch gears just a little bit and talk about the Audubon. So when did this? When did you hear about this? Or when was the first? No, oh, first time I heard about Audubon was um, uh, in two thousand one, maybe. 2000, 2001, uh, I, they were talking about having an IndyCar race in Chicago at Sportsman's Park. And so I went there just to see what was going on. And um, I'm, I, this guy, a friend of mine said, you got to meet this guy, Mark Basso. Um, he's an insurance guy, but he's, he wants to build a private racetrack, you know, wants to talk to you about it. So I met Mark, told me what he wanted to do. And of course, I was living in Ohio at the time. So you know, I didn't have an interest in it at the time. And I said, well, yeah, it sounds like a great idea. You know, good luck, you know. <laughs> and uh, God bless him. I mean, he, he, before you know it, you know, he, he had all the guys ready to plunk down some money to get the thing going. And, uh, and, um, and so I think probably it was around 2000. Five, maybe four, somewhere around there, because I knew I was moving back to Chicago. We got together, and so we, we I, you know, um, I was able to, you know, get this piece of land and committed to building this, and you know, and the rest is history. Um, but yeah, Mark, uh, Mark uh, had this dream and put it together, and and uh, we're all very fortunate that he did it because we were all able to come out here and, you know, have fun. How often do you get, uh, so, so that would have been early on, so you said Graham's 30, so was he kart racing out here? Did he bring the no, karts out here? No, and, no, he didn't. Um, because up until recently, it was the, the small, new kart circuit's yeah. a great circuit, but back then it was pretty simple, so they didn't have kart racing here, or at least at the level he was doing it at. Right. Yeah. And. So, do you get on the? Have, did you, do you drive the track very often? Do you bring a car? I don't. I don't. I've driven it. Um, it's a good track, uh, tracks or track, depending. Um, but um, uh, you know, one thing I like about being out here is I'm in the country, so I can take my old car. I don't have any old racing cars, really. So, I take my car out and you know drive it around out in the out in the countryside. Um, but for me, this was all about. Um, and I did have race cars here, old ones, but uh, but uh, to me, this is kind of like my office. It's uh, you know my memorabilia is here. Um, it's like, I, mean, I actually lived out here for about nine months, my wife and I, back in 07, 08. Um, uh, you know, it's just a great place for us to come out, my friends, my family, what have you, and um, so I, I don't really participate in the racing because I really stopped that but um, but, I, but I certainly like the atmosphere and 
A lot of good people here. It is a unique atmosphere. I just saw an article. This came up, popped up on our computer. Um, they just put a new, similar type racetrack in my outside of Miami. Yes. And yeah. um, they were talking about that, and they had mentioned the granddaddy of of country club racing was the Audubon. Yeah. Well, you know, there have been others out there. There was there was uh, what was it called? Not Texas Ranch. Some. Something ranch yeah, down in down in Houston. Several different um, ones now. Of course, now there's one out in Palm Springs area, which is a very nice one down in Florida. Very nice. I mean, uh, there's one in New York uh, uh, called um, Monticello, which is a very good circuit, very good place. Uh, but I think I think it could be said that Audubon's probably the most successful of them all, and uh, yeah, great next to a great city, a lot of car guys in the area, obviously. Um, but they do a very good job. You know, they bring in the manufacturers. The, the, the tracks are busy all the time. So it's a, it's a, Mark and, and his staff have done a really good job over the years. And it's just, I think it's just getting better as it gets older. Well, the, they did mention the cost to join those other places. Mm, it was and high. Very high. Yeah. This is, you can almost live in down in Miami and fly up here. Yeah, you probably the, could. the value that you're getting here at the club, yeah. it's very, very No, nice. it's reasonable, very for sure. Very reasonable. You know, and um, which is, I think, why it's so well-subscribed, you know. Yeah. So yeah. I, I know, it, you know it, it allowed me to be part of it here. If it mm -hmm. was the cost that, they, that they're doing down in Miami, I yeah. think we would not have been a, our family would not be members here. Yeah. So the, the new... New, well, we talked about it last year with Mark Basso, and we'll talk about this year on the podcast again, is building this ladder system where you know, we want to bring uh, members in, young guys and girls, into the club here and then show them a ladder system through to become professional drivers. Mm -hmm. um, so I mentioned my son's 15. If he was sitting here and said, should I be a professional driver? Should I drive? If that's my dream, what would you say to him? Well, I think you've... Um you, you, uh, there's nothing wrong with following your dreams. Um, I think you have to, uh, if you're going to follow it, you, you've got to do absolutely everything you can to achieve it, and uh, whatever that might be. And, um, um, you know, not everybody becomes a professional. Um, you know, it's not like, you know, there's, there's really only, you know, X number of, Drivers that, I mean, there's a lot of drivers that can make a, a, a decent living. There's only X number that make a really good living. Um, but if it's what you love doing, I, you know, I'm a huge supporter of that. Uh, I think you have to be realistic with yourself, honest with yourself, because if you're not making it, if you're not getting it done, you have to say time out, you know, wait a minute, time out. But before you get to that point, you got to do everything you can to get there. And, um, um, you know, why not? <laughs> Why not? You know, um, uh, to me, you know, you don't want to go through life and always regretting or always wondering, well, what if I'd done this? What if I'd done that? You know. But again, you have to be willing to pay the price, and there is a price to pay. Do you think um, the sim racing that my, you know, we have two really good, well several good drivers here, but one um, driver particularly that I work with, uh, with, we do a little podcast, meaning that I work not as driving, but I just do a little weekly podcast with him to show you know, what, what he's doing is with his racing career. And he's a big proponent of the, 
sim racing, yeah. particularly when he's learning new tracks. Um, yeah. That's where he started. Yeah, I think that probably has value for sure. Um, but it's not like the real world either. It's simulated. Yeah. And now, having said that, you know, they, they do have simulators uh, in racing. You know, Honda's got a big, uh, got one down in Indianapolis that the IndyCar guys use. And they're becoming more and more uh, indicative of, uh, of, the rate of the real world. But it's not to the point where if it works there, it works in the real world. And it, it'll be difficult for that ever to happen because the real world is constantly changing. Now, you can, you can input that, I suppose, and you know, if you've got enough power in your computers and what have you to generate all this information um, to, to create the same thing in a simulated world. But again, um, it'll, I think it's, it'll give you indicators of where to go, but it's not precise, to, at least at this point in time. Maybe at some point in time, it. it you know, it will be 10 years from now. I mean, especially with, with, the, with the sophistication and computing that exists today. And when you think about where it's going to be 10 years from now, let alone 20, you know, uh, maybe we're not racing in the real world at all anymore. But, um, you know, uh, to me, the things that, that you would miss in it is the, the, the physical sensation. Right, well, that's what they and, say. Is and that, uh, that's going to be the big issue. How do you create that if you want to really know what it's like? Mm-hmm. So it's yeah. like when I drove, when I flew in the, you fly, when I flew in a, the, the Navy simulator at Lemoore Naval Air Station, and I'm in air combat, and you can do all this stuff, but you're not, you don't feel the Gs, you don't feel the, you know, right. you know, trying to blow the seat up to make it feel like Gs, but it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's not the same, obviously. So um, now maybe they've done something that was quite a while ago. So maybe they can do that today. But um, um, but uh, you know, I don't think we're there yet. Will we, we? Will we get there? You know, I guess you'd have to say probably. But when I don't know. Um, road to Indy. That's the way to be, can, be an IndyCar driver. Well, I, I think you've got to. Yeah, I mean, if you want to go IndyCar racing, but you know. Um, I think road racing is the best uh, educator of, uh, on how to drive a racing car. Um, but having said that, there are guys that are really good road racers that weren't that good of oval track guys and kind of vice versa. But I still think road racing is the ultimate test for a driver, regardless of what he's in, just the nature of the track. So yeah, I think so. All right. Well. Thank you. It's, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much yeah. for, for allowing us to um, hear your story. Yeah, my pleasure. And uh, I wish your racing teams and uh, great success. Thank and, you. And uh, your son, great success out there. And, Thank you. In the in, in IndyCar world. Yeah. Um, all right. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. Well, welcome back. Producer Mark McFarland, thanks for joining me as we bounce out of the second half to part two of the Audubon Country Club podcast with Bobby Rahal after winning, his team winning the uh, 8500 this week uh, as driver. Takuma Sato. I I was an F1 fan of Sato because he used to race in F1 
And, you know, he was definitely a guy that believed in, you know, if it was in his way, if it, if he couldn't get around it, he was just going to go through it. So, but he is really, this is, I believe, his second win at the Indy 500, if I remember correctly. Yeah. yeah. So, right. yeah. He, yeah. He, he has, re- what's interesting, and as Bobby mentioned, you know, he likes it when those, you know, the, the, uh, the road, road guys beat those circle guys. And Sato, I think, was pretty much weaned on a road track. And now is coming in and doing, you know, the ovals and, and, and putting it to the guys that uh, are not oval rate, you know, that were born and raised and, and weaned on oval racing. So kudos to Mr. Sato and definitely kudos to Mr. Rahal for getting right. to drink some more milk. <laughs> we got some other great interviews coming up. We have so many great interviews. We can't name them right now. The, no. Well, I was talking about the cart race coming up on the 12th. And then the okay. Ignite Challenge coming up on the 13th, the Auto Race on the 13th, and more kart racing on the 20th as a makeup day. And then on the 26th of September here, we got GT Racing, expect the Auto Racing. A lot of racing coming up, a lot of lapping. It's always a blast. Thank you, John, for being able to put an interview like that together. I know the fanboy in you, you know, you had to push that fanboy down a little bit, but you did a great job. It was an excellent interview. And I think Bobby Rahal is a great representative for the track. And I think, you know, uh, hopefully we can see him come out and maybe put some of those nice cars that you unable, were unable to take pictures of. Hopefully we can get him to bring some of those nice cars out and we can see what they sound like and look like on the track someday. Yeah, good point. Yeah, check out the link below to see the Peterson Automotive Museum. They talk about some of the cars he's got in there, and it's a nice video of Bobby at the track, uh, and it was great. And, yeah, we did this way back, and in january and now who would have thought it would be august and september before we're uh, broadcasting this and, and sending it out and uh, producing the podcast but uh, we have uh, just a few more short months here to go in the season uh if you have a comment for mark or a comment for me john please email us at, so podcast at autobahncc.com because yeah. i almost sent craig cunningham an email right there hi craig cunningham <laughs> We haven't given you a plug lately, so hi, Craig Cunningham. Podcast at AutobahnCC.com. We'll see you next time. Thanks, Mark. You bet. You've been listening to Autobahn Country Club Podcast, where your host, club member John Graybill, opens the doors to America's premier auto sports club. Join us next time for Autobahn Country Club Podcast. <laughs>